1: An analysis of the social and political history of Australia's role in the nuclear industry inevitably illuminates general questions about the role of technology in modern society, the gradual erosion of trust in both technical experts and political institutions, the existential threats to our civilization posed by climate change and nuclear weapons, and the fundamental incapacity of most elected politicians to engage with long-term issues. When I told a respected colleague I was writing a book about this, I was asked, why are you bothering? It was a good question, but I think it was worth the effort.
0: Hello, and a warm welcome to the Good Reading podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. For the last 40 years, Professor Ian Lowe has been working on aspects of energy supply and use, especially the environmental consequences such as climate change, as well as the broader issue of sustainable futures. Parallel to a long career in universities, research councils and advisory groups, Professor Lowe has authored several books, including Living in the House*, A Big Fix, A Voice of Reason, Bigger or Better, and The Lucky Country. He is also the author of the 2006 quarterly essay on the prospects for nuclear power in Australia, and a flip book with Professor Barry Brook giving the two sides of the argument. Today, I'm talking to Professor Ian Lowe about his new book, Long Half-Life, The Nuclear Industry in Australia. Ian, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: A pleasure, Greg.
0: While most people are probably familiar with the term half-life, I gather that this book is not merely reiterating the fact that uranium-238 has a half-life of 4.5 billion years and uranium-235, a half-life of 700 million years. The term half-life, as you use it in this book, seems to also refer to something else about the nuclear industry in Australia.
1: Yes, I'm making the point that uh, the timescales involved in nuclear issues are unimaginably long, and they contrast vividly with um, political decision makers whose time horizon usually extends to this year's budget or next year's election, and they appear fundamentally incapable of engaging with those long-term issues. Uh, I also had a sense of deja vu because about every 20 years in Australia, somebody raises the idea that we should be building nuclear power stations. Um, In the 1960s, it was because people were dying and being injured in coal mines. Um, In the 1980s, it was really a secret agenda that we might want to have nuclear weapons. In 2007, when for John Howard it became embarrassing that he'd done nothing about climate change, he set up a, uh, an inquiry into nuclear as a distraction. Um, and more recently, the um, Morrison government asked the House of Representatives Committee to look at the legal impediments to nuclear power. So they keep asking the same questions about every 10 or 20 years and they keep getting the same answers, which is that, Uh, Nuclear power doesn't make uh, economic sense in Australia and uh, would be a a real waste of um, limited resources. And in fact, the Academy of Technology and Engineering said to the last inquiry that developing the regulatory framework that we would need if we were to have nuclear power would consume resources that might more profitably be used on more urgent priorities.
0: Over the last 50 years or so, the Australian public has consistently rejected plans for a wider nuclear industry, whether that be um, nuclear weapons or nuclear energy. That's an industry beyond that of nuclear medicine. Why are we still having this debate?
1: That's a a very good question. Uh, When the original Lucas Heights Research Reactor, which was set up to develop the skills that we would need if we were to have nuclear energy, Uh, When it it reached the end of its life, there was a vigorous debate about whether we should replace it with a research reactor. And the debate centred around the fact that um, there was at the time no serious discussion that we should have nuclear power stations, that uh, Lucas Heights uh, has a primary function of supplying radioactive isotopes for um, diagnosis and uh, treatment in the medical area. And there are alternative ways of producing those isotopes, which are probably more cost effective and don't have the long term problems of managing the radioactive waste from nuclear reactors. In the end, the government decided that it would replace the research reactor. And I think part of that really was a very quiet agenda that at some stage in the future, we might want to develop nuclear weapons in Australia. And if we did, If we already had a research reactor, it would be comparatively simple to reconfigure it so we could produce the radioactive material for nuclear weapons. If we didn't have a research reactor, setting up the structure would send an obvious signal to people in our region that that's what we were about. So I suspect behind closed doors in Canberra, the real agenda was that uh, having a replacement research reactor would allow us... At any time in the future, if we felt so inclined, to uh, turn our plowshares into swords and uh, reconfigure the reactor so that we could develop nuclear weapons. And um, part of that was an ongoing debate that's rumbled around uh, ever since the end of the war in Vietnam, where uh, quite reputable authorities suggest that we can't necessarily rely on the United States of America to protect us if we were ever in conflict uh, with our regional neighbours. And so we need to think about uh, being able to stand on our own two feet in defence terms.
0: Long Half-Life is also about the history of the nuclear debate in Australia as much as it is about the debate itself. And you devote a chapter to the 1976 Fox report. What is the significance of the Fox report and how did it affect the direction of the debate in the years since? Just to
1: summarise the history, in the 1970s, large uranium deposits were discovered in the Northern Territory, Ranger, Jabaluka, Kungara, and it became apparent that Australia could possibly develop the uranium export industry. The Whitlam government set up an inquiry under Justice Fox of the Federal Court uh, with Professor Charles Kerr of the University of Sydney and Dr Graham Kelleher to look at the implications of mining and exporting uranium and it broadened into an inquiry about those more general issues of what would happen to australian uranium as well as the specific issues of what the environmental risks were in the northern territory and the fox report uh, in the final analysis gave a cautious approval to exporting uranium it said that um, it would probably be a profitable industry, although its overall economic benefits would be limited and uh, it would provide quite modest employment. And it raised serious questions about two issues involved in exporting uranium. One is that using uranium in nuclear reactors inevitably produces radioactive waste, which has to be managed for unimaginably long periods at least tens of thousands of years, arguably hundreds of thousands of years, far longer than any human civilization has ever endured. And secondly, uh, any country that has nuclear reactors to allow it to produce electricity could also use those reactors to develop nuclear weapons. And the report said the nuclear industry is unintentionally contributing to the risk of nuclear war. And so in its final report, it recommended that Uh, there should be a public debate about whether we should mine and export uranium. And if we made a decision to export uranium, it should be subject to strict safeguards and the subject of regular review. At the time, it became a political issue because the ALP under Gough Whitlam and then Bill Hayden in the 1970s took a policy decision to oppose the mining and export of uranium because of concerns about radioactive waste and weapons proliferation. And that was the ALP policy in the 1970s. Uh, When Bob Hawke became leader, he watered it down by accepting that while the Labor Party was generally opposed to the mining and export of uranium, it wouldn't interfere in the ongoing export from Ranger and the possibility of uranium being produced by the Olympic Dam mine in South Australia, which is Basically a very large copper mine, but which also produces significant amounts of uranium and gold and silver. And so Australia adopted under Bob Hawke the so-called three mines policy in which uh, three mines would be allowed to operate and export uranium, but Australia would be opposed to uh, the development of any others. And uh, Hawke laughed off the obvious double standards as saying we were morally opposed to exporting uranium but very happy to have three very large mines uh, by saying, I think, uh, if you can't ride two horses, you shouldn't be in the circus. Uh, But it was obvious at the time that uh, the the moral issue had been clouded by the commercial one that uh, there was money to be made by exporting uranium. The... General recommendation of the Fox report that we should regularly review our policy has not been followed at all. In fact, there's been almost no debate in the last 30 years about the mining and export of uranium. It's just been assumed that if uh, it was profitable to export uranium, it should be done. And uh, we've continued to be a major exporter. But one of the points I make in the book is that the promised economic bedanza has never materialised. At the time of the Fox report, it was argued that Ranger would start off exporting 3,000 tonnes of uranium oxide a year and rapidly expand that to 30,000 tonnes a year. Well, Ranger has just closed after 40 years of operation in which it exported 120,000 tonnes of product, about 3,000 tonnes a year over that entire period. And uh, when I did a comparison, I found that As a revenue generator from exports, uranium ranks with minor minerals like tin and tantalum. Uh, In fact, last year we made significantly more exporting cheese than we did exporting uranium. And uh, one conclusion I came to is that since radioactive waste is more unsavory than an old Gorgonzola and the safeguards arrangements have more holes than a Swiss cheese, we (laughs) would probably be better off exporting cheese than exporting uranium.
0: I want to turn back to uh, the debate again, Uh, and the debate basically hinges on the economic benefits versus the environmental or financial risks. That's in reference to a broader nuclear industry in Australia. But the recurring theme within this debate is the issue of conflicting expert advice. With the recent pandemic, we've seen a consensus on the medical advice, if not the implementation of that advice. Why can't experts speak with one clear voice on the future of the nuclear industry?
1: Well, one reason experts can't speak with one clear voice is that the issues are not certain. Uh, When Barry Brook and I wrote a flip book in 2009, it's called a flip book because it has no back cover. It has two front covers. And one front cover says nuclear power, yes. And if you open it from that side, you find an essay by Barry Brook saying why Australia should build nuclear power stations and a critique by me of his argument. If you turn it over on the other side, it says nuclear power. No, and you find an essay by me saying why we shouldn't build nuclear power stations and Barry Brooks critique. And after the book was published, uh, we did double acts at a few ideas, festivals and writers festivals. And one of them, uh, a thoughtful member of the audience said, how can two intelligent and well-informed scientists come to such completely different views? And I set out for him what we, Barry Brook, and I agreed on. We agreed that climate change was a serious issue. We agreed that we needed to run down using coal fired electricity as part of the solution to climate change. We agreed that the only two potential low carbon options were nuclear power or renewables, solar and wind. And we both agreed that the existing nuclear power stations. Posed significant problems that had not been resolved of waste management and weapons proliferation. Barry Brooke was optimistic that a new generation of nuclear reactors could be developed, which would resolve those problems. And he was pessimistic that solar and wind could be scaled up to meet the very large energy demands of an industrial society like Australia. I was pessimistic about the promise of a new generation of nuclear reactors because I'd been hearing it for 50 years. Um, There was always in the pipeline a new generation of reactors which would be cleaner and safer and provide more cost-effective electricity. And just because the industry had been consistently wrong for decades didn't mean it would always be wrong, but it did suggest to me that caution was well advised. On the other hand, I did a back of the envelope calculation and realised that The amount of sunlight hitting an area about 12 kilometres square at uh, midday today is about as much energy as Australia uses. So as a very large country with a lot of unoccupied land, uh, we have every possibility of scaling up solar and wind energy to meet all of our needs. Uh, Now, in terms of what decision makers should do where experts disagree, I cite in the book the wise advice of Dr Barry Jones when he was the science minister at a time when climate science was much less advanced than it is now. And there was genuine uncertainty about whether human activity burning fossil fuels was changing the atmosphere in a way that would change the climate. And he gave what I thought was wise advice. He said decision makers should always consider the possibility of getting it wrong. And he said, if the climate scientists are wrong and we listen to them, the worst that could happen is that we use cleaner but more expensive energy. And he said that might not be economically optimal, but it wouldn't have serious consequences. On the other hand, he said, if the climate scientists are right and we don't listen to them, there could be catastrophic consequences, potentially even the end of civilization. So he said, if I thought there was... Uh, even a 5% chance the climate scientists were right, I'd be urging decision makers to listen to them. And I think the same argument applies to the nuclear issues. Um, It may be that expanding nuclear power won't lead to unscrupulous or desperate decision makers having nuclear weapons and using them, and it might not lead to the waste uh, which is... Currently piling up at nuclear power stations, being a serious environmental risk, but getting it wrong has potentially catastrophic consequences. And there's almost nothing to be lost by not going ahead with nuclear power now that we have uh, cost-effective uh, alternatives. And in fact, the the thing that's changed uh, since Barry Brook and I wrote our flip book in 2009 is there's been a dramatic improvement in the cost effectiveness of renewables like solar and wind uh, while nuclear has not achieved any significant cost reduction. In fact, in 2009, nuclear was cheaper than wind and about a third, the price of energy from solar cells. Uh, Today, it is about four times the price of electricity from solar or wind. So uh, there is no economic argument for using nuclear energy to offset the extra risks that entails. So I think th- there are times when experts legitimately can't agree because there is room for disagreement. That it is, it was not certain in 2009, if better nuclear technology would be developed, it was not certain that the price of electricity and solar and wind would continue to come down. I think those issues have now been resolved. But we see experts disagreeing about um, whether the AstraZeneca vaccine should be used on people under the age of 40 uh, because there's genuine disagreement and you can't do controlled experiments where human life is at stake. So there there is disagreement. And again, prudent decision makers are erring on the side of caution, thinking about what happens if they get it wrong. And I think that's a, a good general rule for decision makers where there is uncertainty.
0: Ultimately, the decision to develop and expand the nuclear industry in Australia, I guess rests with what you call the ordinary person. But this is subject yes. to the appropriate debate, um, the advice from experts and the correct information being made available to everyday people. Should that decision be left to the public rather than the experts? Can, they, can the public be trusted to make the right decision?
1: Well, I mean, the Fox report argued that the decision should be made by ordinary people and that the role of experts should be to supply the information that allows them to to make wise decisions. And that was the approach taken in South Australia when they set up a Royal Commission to look at South Australia's involvement in the nuclear industry. And the Royal Commission uh, recommended that the government should consider setting up shop to take in radioactive waste from the nuclear power industry in countries in our region, like uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, that uh, don't have suitable geological strata for uh, long-term disposal of radioactive waste. And they argued that there was a significant economic opportunity and uh, also that, in one sense, as a country that exports uranium, Australia could be thought to have a duty to take responsibility for the consequences of the radioactive waste and help to manage it. And the South Australian government decided, I think reasonably, that for such a major project to go ahead, they needed to have assurance that the community supported it. So they set up a citizen's jury, and the citizen's jury interviewed a range of experts with different views, both about the technical issues of building and operating a repository for radioactive waste and the potential economic benefits. And in the final analysis, uh, they basically decided that they weren't confident that the proposal was uh, profitable and uh, they recommended that the government not go ahead and the government accepted that decision. Uh, In in some ways, I, I think it was a model of good process because Uh, Scientists can tell you how you would manage radioactive waste and engineers can tell you how you would construct and operate a repository. But the decision about whether that is a sensible thing for a country like Australia to do is really a decision that affects the whole society. And I, I thought that the South Australian government's argument that they would only go ahead if it had clear public support was uh, a prudent one and almost a a model of good decision-making. And expanding on that point, I noticed that there's uh, an increasing view in the Northern Hemisphere that it's difficult for elected politicians who have to get re-elected on a timescale of three to five years to take the hard decisions that are needed to respond to serious issues like climate change. And a lot of countries are playing with the notion of uh, setting up citizens' juries, taking people out of their normal day-to-day life for a period of a month or so, uh, providing them with information and getting them to make recommendations about what should go ahead, uh, securing the knowledge that at the end of that four to six weeks, they'll go back to being a, a school teacher or a computer engineer or a a medical laboratory technician or whatever it is, uh, and not have to be popular in the short term, recognising that uh, what might be necessary for our long-term survival might be so unpopular in the short term that no elected politician will dare do it. And I think that was a very important conclusion of the Fox report and one that probably deserves uh, wider recognition in the public debate, that these big decisions really need to be taken by the community as a whole, rather than decision-makers who are looking nervously over their shoulder and reading the opinion polls and working out what that means in marginal electorates.
0: As a final question, in 2010, you published a collection of essays titled A Voice of Reason, Reflections on Australia. And that book was quite optimistic about Australia's and the planet's prospects in the 21st century. Are you still optimistic 10 years on?
1: I'm less optimistic than I was 10 years ago because um, we've made very little progress dealing with the big issues and uh, that, that's not just a big issue like uh, nuclear energy. The uh, world scientists' second warning to humanity in 2017, 25 years after their first warning in 1992, said that we'd made significant progress in slowing the depletion of the ozone layer but all of the other large-scale global environmental issues are getting worse. Um, in that 25 years, the amount of fresh water per person declined by 25 percent. The fish catch is down by 20 percent. Uh, we've lost 100 million hectares of forest. The number of ocean dead zones has almost doubled. Uh, species abundance, which in 1992 was 60 percent of the 1970 level by 2017 was 40% of the 1970 level. So we're seeing a catastrophic loss of the biological diversity of the planet and um, climate change is still accelerating despite the succession of international conferences that have aimed to set out a process for slowing down uh, our assault on the global climate system. So uh, I'm still optimistic in the sense that I recognise that Human systems are nonlinear and can change very rapidly from one stable state to another. And I reflect that in 2007, in about six months, John Howard went from being unassailable to being unelectable. He went from being one of our longest-serving prime ministers to losing his own electorate, that people just stopped listening to him. And we've seen very significant change in Australia in some important issues like accepting cultural diversity, accepting gender differences and so on. Um, my worry is that we're not reacting nearly fast enough, and there really isn't a sense of urgency in dealing with issues like climate change or the loss of biodiversity or the need to manage radioactive waste. Um, and politicians still seem to think that as long as the economy is going gangbusters, people will overlook their failure to address those important issues. But in the final analysis, uh, if we don't maintain the integrity of natural systems, we won't have the things we absolutely need, like breathable air and drinkable water and the capacity to produce our food. So we won't have much of a future. So my book is really another appeal to politicians to think about the long-term issues, which are far more important than the day-to-day trivia. And when the history of this century is written, uh, even the pandemic will seem like a minor issue compared with the issues of managing climate change and managing radioactive waste.
0: Professor Ian Lowe, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: been a real pleasure, Greg.
0: I've been talking with Professor Ian Lowe about his new book, Long Half-Life, The Nuclear Industry in Australia. It's published by Monash University and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Luxure Read. Why not spoil yourself? Or give the gift of a Luxury subscription today. Visit luxury.com.au to find out how.